Hello and welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, review it, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes that it throws up. And as always we end with our recommendations, films to watch further off this week. But before we kick off, um, as we started doing this, um, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching. So, So Rob, what about you? Uh, well, mine's, my, my, what I've been watching involves a little bit of a story, a little bit of an insight into me. But I have a weird love for films that get forgotten. Right. So, well, aside from my films that uh, that no one ever heard of, so I'm a big love of, of, of the terrible films no one ever heard of. But I have a do I do these loves for films that kind of get made, are big for a while, and then just kind of go away. And the film I'm talking about now is the 2003 film, The Hunted. The Hunted stars Tommy Lee Jones and Benito del Toro. I remember this. But everyone's like, oh yeah, I remember that. But it came out I saw that, and then just disappeared. I saw that at the cinema. As did I. And it was a big, it was a big thing when it came out. But then it just kind of disappeared. Mm. And I have this kind of long-term enjoyment of these films that just kind of, everyone's like, oh yeah, I remember that. And... This was on at the weekend. I was in Zurich at the weekend, and it was either on one of the BBC channels or one of the um, Swiss channels. And I watched it, and it was literally—it's that sort of film. I saw it in the cinema. I haven't seen it since, and it just—it remains in my mind of this film that got forgotten. But it was on, and I watched it. Um, there's a reason why it's forgotten. It isn't very good, but <laughs> I enjoy the fact this film just kind of just was a blip in nothing. And in many ways, I think one of the big examples of this film is Avatar. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Avatar was huge, yeah. huge, and it had lots of technical knock-ons in the film, the film industry, but as a cultural knock-on, it's had really nothing. It was just this massive peak yeah. in that film. Again. Yeah. Um, so that, that was it, The Hunted 2003. All right. You, Sam. I have watched one film uh, this week, well, other than Raiders that we can talk about in a minute, um, and... This was as part of a conference I was at on on uh, Friday. So again, our, our film watching this week involves telling a story. So my my story is going to be about this conference I was at on Friday, um, and it was organised in part by um, a woman friend of mine called Emily Zobel Marshall. Um, I call her a friend, friend of mine. I, I met, met her this week, but i known her through other people, so I consider her a friend. Um, and her grandfather, Joseph Sobel, um, was Martinican, uh, moved to France, um, and spent, I believe he spent much of his life in France, um, but he wrote a novel, semi-autobiographical novel, about his time growing up in Martinique, called Uruka's Negre. Um, which is translated as Sugarcane Alley or Black Shack Alley, depending on your um, how I don't know, depending on your political leanings, I suppose. So we watched a film of this, and it was made into a film. Uh, the novel was from the nineteen fifties, which was made into a film in nineteen eighty three um, by a young Martinican director. Um, and the thing is that. I'm sure I would love this book. And it says some really interesting things about the way that Martinican people, particularly black Martinicans, were treated in the 1930s. And it was particularly... It was 
was particularly moving thinking about Joseph Sebel's experiences in Martinique. Um, so it, it was, in general, a, a really good thing. Um, as a film, however, it's awful. Fair enough. Um, so I would heartily recommend the book. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe I was in the wrong frame of the mind, mind for the film, but I just couldn't get into the film at all. This week um, on the so podcast, that's, guys, that's... films that are not very good and no one really likes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Anyway, we will proceed with the film that I think we we think more of, um, although we will find out that in, in a few minutes. It is the 1981 film Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. Directed by Steven Spielberg and with a story by George Lucas, Raise the Lost Ark has... Music by John Williams and stars Harrison Ford. They're basically getting the band back together, to borrow a phrase from the Blues Brothers the past couple of weeks. Um, it, it is the same team as Star Wars, and they're telling a similar tale. A tale of adventure and quest in search of a religious artefact, or in search of something. Um, and there is strong support from Karen Allen as Marion, Paul Freeman as Belloc, John Reese davis although it's a racial dubiousness of uh, Salah the Egyptian being played by an Englishman. Um, but it's mainly carried by Harrison Ford. Um, and Lucas did prefer Selector Force when he was um, pitching the story to Spielberg. Spielberg wanted Ford. Lucas didn't want Harrison Ford to turn into... The guy who's in all of my movies, um, and mm-hmm. it was a scheduling thing around uh, Magnum PI that, that they couldn't get Tom Selleck, so they got Harrison Ford, and that's that. People pretty much know the story. Uh, Rob, your thoughts? I don't like it. Okay, as uh, of course I love it. Who, who, doesn't, who doesn't love Indiana Jones? Um, I think that in many ways Raiders is a bit like Back to the Future in that it's this weird cultural icon where you kind of can't not like it. Mm. Um, I think it's... It, it, not that it's a part is good and bad, but it's just kind of there. It's woven into the fabric of, of, of our of our country. It's like when someone says they, they've never seen Star Wars. It's like, how do, you, how do you go through life and not see Star Wars? Everyone's seen Star Wars. It's just mm. like it's part of the fabric of living in the Western world. Raiders itself is probably the indie film I've seen the least. Um, I've probably seen... Temple of Doom the most um, with uh, large creators in second place. We aren't mentioning number four just yet. Uh, the one thing I really had forgotten about Raiders is how slapstick it is. Mm. So many of the fights, especially the early fight um, in I'm going to call Karen Allen, but it's not her name. Um, Ray Marion's bar is very slapstick. There's a little shot where a bullet goes through a, a jar and of water shoots up both sides, and it's very silly. Yeah, and there's that. Um, I mean, there's a point where 
she stops fighting to take a drink of the alcohol that's pouring out because someone just shot a barrel. There, yes. there are little little things like that where you think, yeah, this is just pure slapstick. And I think that's... I'd forgotten that, shall we say. I've forgotten how silly it is at times. Mm. Um, but also how, in many ways, horrific it is. I think we can o- offer a blanket spoiler warning. This film is well known enough that I think spoilers are kind of a bit moot really but if you haven't heard it there is a spoiler warning from now on but at the end scene when they open the arc some of those graphics which is a method is horrific and I it's really I I had it had it my partner I had a discussion about the uh, we were watching this the 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 uh, classification of this and we could not believe that it was a PG Mm. it's it's horrible well, there's a whole plot point in which they try and save Marion's life by saying they're going to sell her into sexual slavery where they're going to. Like that, that is a plot point in the film. Mm. And it's just like, like, this film is far darker than I remember it being, whilst at the same time being far sillier than I remember it being. I, I agree with you. It's it's difficult not to like this this film. And I wouldn't want to suggest that I didn't. I think everything I say will could be prefaced with, "I love this film," but mm. um, so any any of the criticisms I have, uh, sort of after the fact of just loving the experience of watching this film. Um, but yeah, the, some some of the scenes you're right. I mean, th- there's there's one point where um, not Indy but Salah. Um, looking out for Indy, uses a bunch of children as a human shield. Mm. And you think that... If you think about it, that's really creepy. <laughs> um, it, it's not... The, the politics of it are not great. No, no. But at the same time, it is a romp. I mean, literally, I think they have the, they have the opening scene. There's a little bit of a, dull after, a lull after that one to get back to the museum. Then we have... This peak after that, when they um, we get to find Marion, and there's a little lull, and after that second lull, it doesn't stop for an hour. Mm. Yeah, it is just a constant adventure. You no, know, one bang, bang, bang. It goes through these moments of adventure. It just there is no not light and shade, but up and down. It just kind of goes full on after that. Hmm. And that's what I wanted to talk about this week, really. This i this idea of adventure, which is great. I mean, you you may have thought that we planned this in advance, people listening, but we genuinely haven't. Um, I just got the word adventure written down, and, and Rob's um kindly set me up for it. Um, it's just I, I wanted to think about the the attitude of this film to adventure, and what it says about. A, a movie going public's appetite for adventure, maybe, or their their attitude to adventure, um, and it's something that uh, you pick up on fairly early on that this is an adventure film, and this is a film about going out and conquering places, even though it's couched as a film about uh, recovering a religious artifacts. It's mm. actually a film about being better than the Nazis at taking stuff from other people. So there's something... The the adventure here is about appropriating property in quite a problematic yeah. way. 
and this is where we move into the, the sort of the ideas of what is this film trying to be? Because a large part of this films are throwbacks to earlier films and earlier stories and earlier genres. The sort of the Penny Dreadfuls, the the uh, sort of pulp stories of probably the thirties of daring do adventurers around the world fighting the Nazis or fighting the bad guys of those days. And, you know, there with that, with those stories, there is a very inherent racism to those Mm. stories. And if you ever read or watch any of the, that, that films or the story of that era, there is, that's very, very evident, especially if you look at, I mean, my personal sort of passion for the zombie films and the horror films of the era, you know, the little white zombie, which might be the first zombie films, is incredibly racist to modern eyes. And, this film, I felt, was trying to do a, a revisionist version of those, in which we have, you know, the support of the locals, and we have, um, we aren't taking them from, you know, the the the, uh, the impoverished Egyptians. We're taking them from the Nazis, but at the same time, our hero was merely fighting for these things to be in a museum in America rather than in a warehouse in America. Mm. Yeah. Also, although it might have. As you said, it might have Lord Belaine's beneath the surface. There is a certain amount of institutional racism here in in saying, well, we're going to have the natives, quote-unquote, on our side, but none of the speaking parts are going to be played by natives. We're going to get John Rhys-Davis as an Egyptian and Alfred Molina as someone from the jungles of Peru or Colombia or wherever it's at. So... Does it tell you where it's set at the beginning? Uh, sh- no, it doesn't tell me. Right, good. I sh- I should know things like that. Um, but it, it's kind of a well, we're gonna, we're going to get Westerners to play these roles because we we are being a, a little, we are being revisionist to a certain extent, but we're not going to go that far. Yes, I think the. the the opening scene is a very telling scene. The opening scene does a lot of work in setting up this film, in that we have sort of four, let's call them four protagonists in this opening scene. So you've got Indy, his assistant, Belloc, and his local tribesmen, let's call them. Mm. And everyone but Indy there is evil. Yeah. Uh, or not maybe evil, but you've got the his, um, his assistant... Uh, played by a, a young-looking Alfred Molina, I believe. Yes, yeah. Um, who betrays him for for the idol? You got Belloc, who is evil. There is some interesting work with him later on, uh, where he talks about how they are sort of the same person, really two steps removed. Mm. And Belloc himself has duped these natives into following him and killing Indy. So we're presented with these two, the two indigenous. Sort of people of this of this place are either evil or stupid, mm. and there is a bit of and we've talked about it in the past the idea of of the white westerner rocking up in in a non-white country and saving the day, and you know like it, it, it took Indiana Jones going to Egypt for them to find the ark, despite the fact that the the people in the Middle East and Africa have been looking at this for hundreds of years, thousands of years. It took him and his um. Western ways to find it. Mm. Yeah. It there's something as well, it, something problematic around the way that Belloc uses the language, the indigenous language at the beginning, because that that is how he can command the 
the the stupid, as you put it, quote unquote tribesmen. He yes. can he can persuade them that he's in the right because he can speak their language. Um, and and that well that is I, I suppose that that is that is itself problematic. But it's also interesting because Indy never tries to do that. He never you never hear Indy speaking Arabic or um reading you see you see him translating translating script maybe in uh, these films sort of blur into one for me so I'm not sure it may not be in this film but you see him translating script but it's often um things that he's learned by rote or things he takes from the notebooks of other people you very rarely hear hear him speaking a language or see him reading a language so for mm. India it's very definitely well I I will go and be American and I will succeed on my own terms. There's an element of this film of Indy being only just competent enough. Interesting, yeah. You were talking there about things he learned and like he he had to use, he had local experts who um uh sort of helped him out. But even in that opening scene, the opening, I can't the opening again, that he is competent enough to get through the get to the, the, the prize oil and get out again. But all the way through, he still makes mistakes. He still feels like he's from the edge of his teeth mm. getting by. Yeah. And I think that there's that is kind of why this film gets a pass in relation to its kind of colonial um, relationship with within Egypt, particularly. But you don't feel like Jones is that good or that domineering or that much of an oppressor because he just feels like he feels like he's you know one step away from just ruining everything Mm. and that's Um, interesting because it's this is not just channeling pulp fiction of the 19 not not the film pulp fiction of the 1930s this is channeling adventure stories of the 1880s and 90s this is H. Ryder Haggard but the difference here is, you're right, the, the protagonist of King Solomon's Mines or the Coral Island um, will be people who are in charge of what they're doing and they, they are experts in a certain way and they are, they are able to um, manipulate uh, the narrative of, of this, this foreign exotic place to suit their ends. And you're right, he, he doesn't manipulate the narrative because he's just clinging on by the skin of his teeth. And he's just every single thing, almost every, every scene for Indy seems to be like it seems to be a, a version of that scene right at the beginning. To, to keep going back to the beginning, but where he he sneaks below the the door and then has to go back for his whip. It's it's mm. just just by the skin of his teeth all the time. And I think that's why th- there's a lot of love for Indy as a character, and I'm I'm a outside of this movie I'm a big proponent of I like films and media about people who are competent so I don't enjoy The Simpsons because everyone in that's kind of incompetent that's the humour of it, brilliant but I don't enjoy that myself, I enjoy competent people Okay. and thus one of my big big loves is The West Wing The West Wing is a comedy show about people who are competent mm. but the reason why that works and it isn't smug is because they are only just competent or they are competent in one way, but completely incompetent in another. 
You know, you got you got I mean, Indy who clearly is utterly incompetent at love mm. in this film, at least. You know, he has a teenage girl who writes "love you" on her eyelids and blinks him, and it completely flusters him during his speech. Mm. Clearly, he completely screwed up the relationship with Marion, um, and so he has his incompetence to deal with this kind of thing. So that there is a from a, a story point of view, a narrative point of view of this film, there's great value in having this person who's just about competent mm. or competent in one way but not in other. And if you look at, we will touch on this, I'm sure, in future, look at John McClane in Die Hard. Now, John McClane is a key example of this. In the first film, he is just competent enough. You know, you always feel, skin of his teeth, he could get, he's just getting by. He's just getting by. He's, he, he comes out cut, bruised, he almost loses, he just gets by, unless you root for him. Mm. By the time we get to, you know, the one where he's punching a jet fighter out of the air, you've lost that just competent enough. He's a superhero, superhuman superhero who can fight jet planes. Mm. And you've lost that link from you to the character, and it gets this sort of smug, isn't he amazing? This This is why... Just thinking, I mean, you've touched on the idea of of superheroes there. I'm just thinking um, about a favourite superhero series of mine recently, Daredevil. And the reason for me Daredevil is so much better than lots of other Marvel um, franchises is the fact that Daredevil is constantly getting beaten up and he's just surviving and he doesn't quite break a leg but he's stabbed a load and he, he gets a punctured lung and he has to has to be patched up by a nurse he, he's on he's on the edge of of surviving all the time so i think i think you're right there's something really interesting there about why why we like why you and i particularly like those those narratives sorry carry on i think there's no no, no I, I i utterly agree i think this is where to Take it a little bit wider a second. You've got something like Superman, who is a very interesting character, and Batman as a teenager. Both of them have tendencies in various films to become super superhumans. Yeah. And I've never been a big fan of Superman because I think that he can be very dull as a character because he's super competent, super nice, and good at everything. Yeah. And you make Superman interesting by focusing on things he's not good at. He's not good at human relations understanding humanity that kind of side of things you make that the interesting part about him because the other stuff isn't as interesting because you know he can beat him mm. you know, Batman Batman what has gone through various iterations in his corporate history but he became interesting when he became the Dark Knight this guy who could beat up anybody and has all the money in the world but can't fight his own demons he can't f- overcome the mental anguish and mental damage he's received and that's where he becomes interesting because he's competent but not wholly competent. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's... you for, for, for Coming back to bring it back around to adventure, you need that in an adventure film. Which is why indie here is such a, a rollicking adventure, because it's always up and down. Like, is he going to make it? Obviously, from a, a meta-textual point of view, you know he's probably going to make it. But once you buy into the film, you, he isn't presented as all-powerful, all-knowing, um, always winning, because... That that keeps the adventure going. I mean, the, the opening scene. Come back to it. He loses mm. after all the work of all the effort of all the skin of his teeth survival of getting out of that crypt. He loses and he escapes literally with his life, and that is it. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and I think that to have a successful adventure film, adventure narrative, you need that. You need that moment of like, well, they may not make this. Yes. And the, I think the best way to do that to keep relatability is to have a imperfect protagonist. Yeah, and you have. Well, th- think of of that moment where he's standing out above the Nazis and Belloc and the and the Ark with a bazooka, and you think mm. someone who is totally in control and and amazing and has decided what he's going to do will just take that shot because that's why he's up there. He's threatening to do something and he'll just do it. But in in do you think yeah he's going to do it? Actually, no, he's not going to do it. And the Nazis close in on him at the end of that shot. So you have yes. there, you have him taking taking one step forward, and then has has to take a step back because of the people around him. And I mean, there's a there's a lovely moment when they are on a ship and they get boarded, and the scene ends with him swimming onto a a submarine. Um. But there's a lovely shot in which the Nazis have boarded the boat and he's hiding, and he's hiding in one of the, uh, the, the I won't call them gunnels or funnels, one of the, 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 the sort of escape vents mm. of, the, um, of the ship. And he has this great look in his face of just like slightly bemusement and like a little lost child. Mm. And it isn't like the heroic character who, you know, you say that he just literally hides in a tube. Um, and I think that there's that's a very important part of that character an important part of the film and as we go through into the other films i kind of i'm intrigued to see how that element of the character and the adventure of the story continues well then we we shall leave it there and and pick it up with indy again next week um rob yes. what, what do you have in the way of recommendations so trying to swerve away from the obvious ones because indy is a film part with only a couple of sort of real sort of comparatives I've kind of very much gone for the I'm ignoring the sort of the thematic recommendations gone for like crew and car recommendations mm-hmm. so the first recommendation is for writer Lawrence Kasdan he was a screenwriter here so it was, the story was by by George Lucas the actual script itself was written by Lawrence Kasdan who's written a lot of Star Wars films a lot of things but one film that also falls in the same category I mentioned earlier about the films that were huge and kind of went away is the 1992 film The Bodyguard. Yeah. Now, this is Kevin Sullivan, not Whitney Houston, as a bodyguard who falls in love with his uh, his charge. It was huge in the 90s, with the mm. theme tune basically just being top of the UK charts for about six months, if the, not longer. The That film makes me think of Disco's in in the mid nineties, because that's all that they played. That that song yes. right at the end. Um, so it's a, it's a nice throwback to a conversation about films that kind of just went away a little bit because no one talked about it anymore. Mm. Um, but it, it is it is very good. Whitney Houston is very good in it, and Kevin Cosner tends to bring good to most things of film. He's but Lawrence Kasdan wrote that as well, good. and I think that's what we're checking out. Secondly, I took the uh, the lead of looking at Karen Allen who stars as Marion Ravewood in this film. And I've gone seasonal. I've gone for the 1988 film Scrooged, in which the Christmas tale starring uh, <coughs> Ebenezer Scrooge is updated to modern-day New York. Bill Murray plays an evil 
or Biscuit Lee's TV executive, and Marion Wavewood plays his lost love of Claire Phillips. It is the perfect anti-Christmas film that ends up being very pro-Christmas. It is Bill Murray at his best. It is Karen Allen at her most sparkly-eyed and attractive. And it is one of my favourite Christmas of all time. Great. Well, my recommendations this week, um, one of them is is thematic. One is about the same time. Um, and this is a film that I haven't seen for years and years, so I've got no idea what I'm recommending here, uh, really. But I would recommend um, Romancing the Stone from 1984. Um, similar p- period, similar narrative of adventure, um, I suspect, although I don't know, as I've just said, I suspect similarly um, difficult politics around uh, certain questions. Um, but that would be an interesting companion piece to um, Raise the Lost Ark, released at about the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one, I was going for a, for a another cast link. Um, Karen Allen, incidentally, I, Karen Allen is not my link, but I did notice that she was in Animal House from last week, so there's a nice connection there. Um, my connection is that Paul Freeman, who played Bullock, or Belosh, depending on um, who you believe, um, was, uh, as as a rather old man, as he is now, he's, he's fairly, fairly old now, as you'd expect, he played the old reverend, um, who's the head of the cabal of, or cult of, um, people who were striving for a particular goal in the film Hot Fuzz. So that would be my recommendation for for a, a... I did not know that, but amazing. There we go. Castling this go. week. There we go. There we go. So next week, guys, we're continuing our franchise, and we'll be looking at the next the next film in the Indiana sort of saga, which is uh, Indiana and the Temple of Doom. Do get in touch. You can speak to both of us on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. You can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And just me at Life underscore Academic. And we'll see you guys next week. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.